Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn with me to 1 Samuel 30. As you're turning to 1 Samuel 30, let me read from something relevant in Deuteronomy 17. Moses said to the people, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. It goes on to say that This king needs to write a copy of the law for himself and read it daily and walk in its ways that he may fear the Lord, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. So God promised a ruler to come from Judah. Here he foretold through Moses that Israel would one day ask for a king. But he prescribed what kind of king it would be. A king not like the kings of the nations around Israel. A different kind of king altogether. A righteous one, a humble one, a sacrificial one. Some 400 years later in 1 Samuel 8, the people of God indeed are in the land and they ask for a king. But one like the nations is what they want that we may also be like the nations, they say, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles for us. They desire to replace Yahweh, the king, not with Yahweh's man, the king to come, the king in God's own timing, but a king now, a king like we want, a king like the nations. The prophet warned the people in that chapter, He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." Shockingly, they nevertheless insist on a king. Make us a king like the nations. We'll tuck all of this away for this Sunday and for next as we come to the end of 1 Samuel this week and next. It's important as we come to these closing chapters at the end to keep in mind the whole book and to not miss the grand scope of God's plan. 1 Samuel is a tale of two kings. Saul, the first king, is a king like the nations. God gave Israel just the kind of king they asked for 
He said, oh, you want a king like the nations? Here, I'll, I'll give you one. And then through the early chapters of 1 Samuel, you see Saul just unfolding his Gentile-likeness, his godlessness, his king-like-the-nations-ness, if we can say that. But there's another king who's coming, a king after God's own heart. From 1 Samuel 17 on to the end of the book, this book really only does one thing. It contrasts King Saul with the king-to-be, David. Saul proves more and more to be like the nations, and David proves more and more to be like that king that Deuteronomy 17 prescribed for the people when they were in the land. The narrative of 1 Samuel just keeps bouncing back and forth. Saul, then David, then Saul, then David, Saul, then David. It's meant to show us contrast again and again. We see, as we come to 1 Samuel 30, a chapter focused on David. Now, 1 Samuel 28 is a chapter focused on Saul. We'll see Saul return again next week, Lord willing, in 1 Samuel 31. So as this week we focus on David in chapter 30, don't forget about Saul and don't forget the purpose of this part of the book to contrast these two kings and to show us what's coming. Saul is being cast down in judgment and David is being raised up in exaltation to be the king of God's own choosing to be a man after God's own heart. It's also important for us to remember how and how not to place ourselves in the story as we, as we read something like 1 Samuel. Uh, someone has put it, we're never the bad guy in the story. You notice that? As you watch a movie, as you read a book, as you hear a story, you, you place yourself in someone's shoes and you're never the bad guy of the story. Or even when you're forced to watch the bad guy of the story, you want to learn from it and do better. But 1 Samuel is not first and foremost a bunch of character sketches in view of moral application. Saul is bad, but he's not just a bad example to avoid. And David is generally good, but he's not just a good example to emulate. Neither is the book of 1 Samuel about a political prescription. It's not giving us a prescription for monarchy, neither is it giving us a warning about monarchy. It's indifferent for our vantage point here to that issue. Neither is it giving us even a lesson in what kind of leaders to elect today. It has implications for that. It does, indeed. We, we know and we can see vividly in the book of 1 Samuel, it's better to have righteous rulers than non-righteous rulers, right? But that's not the book's primary purpose. 1 Samuel wants us to ask and keep asking, what's it like being under this guy? What's it like living in this land at these times with this guy at the helm? How's it going? So we... Read 1 Samuel not as one of the headline makers of the Jewish newspaper, but as one of the readers of those headlines, the headlines that we're reading in this drama unfolding about two kings in 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel 30, 
Even though Saul is still technically the king, the writing is on the wall that David is God's man to shepherd the nation, and the transition is coming imminently as David acts more and more like Israel's true king. There are foreshadows everywhere. Here comes the king. It's as if here comes the king is written on the walls of 1 Samuel 30. Nine R words came to mind as I studied it this week. Not R-rated words, R words. R words begin with R. I don't know why R's and P's always come to me as I, as I prepare lessons and, and use sometimes alliteration. But, but these seem to fit. Nine R's. We'll read each section as we come, come to it uh, in the outline. The first part of the story is restoration. Verses 1 through 6. We've read these verses in recent weeks more than once, so we won't spend much time on it today, but we have to see this as the starting point for this chapter, something if you've been with us, you're familiar with already. Let's read the first six verses where we see restoration. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And taken captive all the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In one of the lowest points of his life, David, in a heartbeat it seems, turns to and is restored to his Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He had been, you could say, on the run, on the run from Saul, and in a sense, on the run from God's promises, hiding out in Philistine country. Things had gone bad as a result of that. Their town had been ransacked and burned. Everything had been stolen, including women and children. The men are holding stones, thinking, yeah, let's do this. And David is restored. He, he gets right with God. He strengthens himself in the Lord his God. I'm tempted to talk more about the beauty and power and, and lessons that are there in verse 6, but we've done it so much already, we, we must move on. But that's the starting point of this chapter, David's restoration. That verse 6 turn uh, just launches us forward into David's well, his godliness and boldness and, and leadership. We could put it this way. His restoration wasn't merely personal restoration or spiritual restoration. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God, and it led to leadership as well. So secondly, we see revelation. Revelation. David seeks and receives a guiding word of revelation from the Lord. In verse 7, it says, and David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, 
Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? Stop there. Now here's something noteworthy. David hasn't actually sought the Lord like this since chapter 23, if you can believe it. You see, as we look back into this this decline in David's life, this backsliding, if you want to call it that, we remember that it wasn't a word from the Lord that caused him to go down to Philistia for safety. It wasn't a word from the Lord that caused David to go on these raids against bandits all through chapter 27, killing basically anyone he could except his own people. That was all part of David's decline, his season of sin. But he's restored to the Lord in verse 6. He's strengthened the Lord. He seeks the Lord like this in this very common practice in Old Testament days, especially when war was on the horizon. David, like others before him, were asking, God, are you in this? Green light or red light? Should we stay or should we go? As far back as Moses' day, God had said to them, I will go before you into battle if you'll act like my people. And if you will not act like my people, then I will be against you temporarily until you, until you are my people. So that's what David is wondering. Will you go before us into battle? Are you with us or against us? Saul, in these same hard circumstances of Amalekites attacking the families and burning the city to the ground, he likely would have gone straight on the march out of that town. He likely would have gone Jack Bauer on them right away, chasing down Amalekites and getting them in his own strength or maybe losing the battle in his own strength. But, but David is not just a mighty warrior. He's first and foremost a man who seeks God. He seeks God here for God's direction. God was kind in those days to give this special means of revelation. The priest had a special cloak that he wore for this kind of revelation. There was a special uh, device. We're not even sure what it is. Umim inthumen. It's something like a Perhaps a coin that got flipped. It was something that gave you a yes or a no. It was, it was like a, one of those eight balls with only yes or no in it. I don't know. We don't know what it looked like, but we know they used it, and we know that's probably what's going on here. David is pursuing the Lord, trying to get a yes or a no. We might be a little bit jealous of them having this means of revelation from the Lord. Wouldn't it be nice to be given a divinely... Uh, orchestrated, divinely instituted coin that you flip, like a God coin, and, and he's in it. You, whatever it is, yes or no, he's in it, and you do it, and, and that's it. We would love to have something like that at those perplexing crossroads in our lives, to just be told yes or no, and, and to do it. But as we've said before, as we've come to things like this in the book of 1 Samuel, We have to remember that we have the word of God in its fullness. We have the Holy Spirit in its fullness. And in those ways, we are a thousand times better off than David was with his ephod and priest. So God is glorified in these days for us, generally speaking, to obey his word in its fullness, to 
otherwise do what we think is best and to trust him for the rest. And in some ways, that's not actually much different than what David was given. Look at God's answer. He said, shall we pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? God answered him in the middle of verse 8. Pursue, for you shall overtake, and you shall surely rescue. Verse 9 says, so David set out and the 600 men who were with him. Now think about it. David was told, go, pursue. And he was told the final outcome. You will overtake them when you get there. You will surely rescue. But everything in between, it's a blank. It's a question mark. There's no information from God about that. God said nothing about which direction David should head out in. The Amalekites were nomads. You didn't just head toward their homeland and hope for the best and maybe you'll catch up. No, they don't have a homeland. You don't know where they went. We're not told how far ahead they are, but clearly David can't see them based on how far they go to look for them. Like Abraham, David went out of Ziklag not knowing where he was going exactly, but simply obeying God for what God had told him to do. He knew the final outcome, but the pathway there wasn't yet clear. He had to trust God for the end and the final and the, the pathway there. And in that way, it's so similar to how God relates to us even today, apart from Uman and Thuman. I'm not even sure I'm saying it right. It's in the Bible, you can look it up later. I, I might be mixing M's and N's or whatever, but. Anyway, the point is this, that God has given us New Testament Christians all kinds of goes and pursues. Pursue, go, do this, do this. He's given us all kinds of assurances. He's told us how this will end. And all the details in between are yet to be seen. At least by us, they're yet to be seen, not him. My father planned it all. What, though the way be, be weary and dark, the shadows fall. I know where'er he leadeth, my father planned it all. But it could be dark ahead. And in the very next verse, David faces another test of faith. Despite this revelation from God, the third R is reduction. It's a trial. David's forces are reduced by a third as 200 exhausted men have to stay back. You see verse 10? But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stay behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They were too exhausted. It had been 16 miles since they left Ziklag. That's a long march in the desert especially when it's back-to-back -back with a, another march, multi-day march, into Ziklag before that. Not to mention many of them, or all of them, had been weeping until there was no strength left in them to weep. No surprise that a third are exhausted and cannot go on. But what a test it is for David and the 400 men. 600 men isn't much anyway against the Amalekites. To have it reduced by a third is difficult, and yet there's no mention of David wondering, 
What's the Lord up to? Did, did he change his mind? Should we ask again? Did the plan change? No, David knows what we know too, that this, in fact, is part of the plan. It's not contrary to the plan or a hiccup in the plan or a speed bump along the way. It is the plan that God would have 400 men go instead of 600 men. It's a Gideon moment. With the Gideon moment in Judges, you, you see God orchestrating the reduction of men. In 1 Samuel 30, you don't see God orchestrating it, but we know the same God's behind it, whether men are tired or have energy, whether they want to go or don't. He's the Lord. In Judges with Gideon, he had to go to war at first with 22,000 men, and then it was reduced to 10,000 men, and then God reduced it to 300. And then God broke him into groups of three, and they said, why? And he said, because uh, you're going, and the rest of you two aren't. 100, that sounds good. You guys go and fight. And they won. And why did God reduce the number? Well, to show that the battle is the Lord's, right? To show his power and his glory, to show it's not by might and not by sword. The battle is the Lord's. Now, notice this in verse 9 and 10, how David is mentioned first and separately from the rest of the men. Verse 9 says, David set out and the 600 men. Verse 10, David pursued he and 400 men. This likely indicates David's bold leadership. It's sort of a no-looking-back moment. David's going no matter if there's 400 or 600 or 1. It's as if David is singing as he goes, Though none go with me, no turning back, no turning back. It shows his strengthened leadership here and his confident trust in the Lord who said, Pursue, you shall overtake despite the reduction. The fourth R is relief. Relief. David and his men provide relief to a helpless foreigner. You see in verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived for he had not yet eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. Stop there. Now, we'll see that there's more to this story than just relief, but... I mean, after all, we just read he's an Amalekite, and that's significant here since they're looking for Amalekites. But, but don't miss the relief part. Don't get to the next verse too quickly. Here's David and his men on this mission, no doubt aggressive in their pursuit. And they happen on an Egyptian slave who's been left for dead. He's sick, he's famished, he's, he's dying of thirst. And so David and his men feed him and they give him drink. It says they even give him dessert, a piece of cake. I mean, who travels with cake? <laughs> David and his men do. That's how they roll. We can get out the cake and the raisins, man. Let's get this guy revived. And his spirit is revived, it says. 
which doesn't just mean that he came to like he was comatose and then they shoved food in his mouth enough that he woke up. And No, no, no. When it says he, he was revived, it means he was refreshed. That took a while. It's incredible kindness they showed this man. They could have come upon him and realized that he's a useless informant because he's on death's door and then just moved on and left him for dead like the last guy did. They could have given him just a bit of water and slapped his face three times, shook him real hard, and then started to interrogate him. But they didn't ask any questions until after the man was refreshed by their best of foods. And then they ask him, and then he says, as we've read already, he was left, he was an Amalekite, he fell sick three days ago, and here's the story, the recent story, verse 14, we had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Whew. Well, this is going to lead to another R, reconnaissance. I had to reach deep for that one, but uh, we maintain the R's as we move along. Reconnaissance, you can see where this is going, can't you? You can see that in God's providence, providing relief to this man was the means by which David got an informant. Providentially, their relief leads to essential intel in reconnaissance. In verse 15, David said to him, Will you take me down to this band of Amalekites? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Once again, God's providence in 1 Samuel is the unseen star of the show. It's all about God's providence and God's mysterious, hidden, unforeseen ways. Remember, we talked about that trial at the beginning, uh, there in verse six, as David, or verse seven, as David sought the Lord and in following, God said, "Go and pursue." But God didn't say which direction to go in. David had to go out in faith. Here they go, sixteen miles. They find a skinny Egyptian in the middle of a desert. Finding a skinny Egyptian in the middle of the desert laying down is like finding a needle in a haystack. And you find him a day later? This is day three with no water? He's dead tomorrow. What are the chances that he'd be one of the very ones who, who ransacked Ziklag? I'm sure they, they wanted to grab him by the shirt and punch him a little bit, but, but, but they know this man has been left for dead, and he can give us answers. And indeed, he does. What are the chances? What are the chances? You could keep saying at every level. What are the chances he knows exactly where this band of Amalekites is? Perhaps they're not too far away. Maybe the next valley over. Maybe at night he can hear them partying, as we'll read here in just a little bit. But he's willing to tell David, nevertheless, where, he, where they are with only a couple of reasonable stipulations. Don't kill me and don't give me back to my master. Which, by the way, here again is another hint that the relief that they showed this man earlier on was not just so that they could get intel from him. 
They were patient with him before they asked him questions. But here also they continue to show kindness when they honor his oath to not kill him and not return him to, their, to his master. It means most likely that they were willing to take him in and receive him into their fold. Kindness is all over the place. And yet so is reconnaissance. The intel leads to this reconnaissance scene in verse 16. When he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. What an opportunity this is. They must have been great in number. That's a problem. They must have been great in number because they were scattered all over the land and yet it's a great strategy uh, just waiting to be tapped into they're vulnerable if they're scattered all over the land we've all heard the phrase divide and conquer right we've all heard the phrase to circle the wagons right because you want to you want a tight group here looking out and defending from the inside out and And here's this group who's already divided themselves many times over. Here's this group who is all over the place and just waiting to be pounced upon. They're partying. They they assume that the Jews are up north fighting with the Philistines because they are. At about the exact same time that David is facing off here against the Amalekites, we'll see next week, the Philistines are marching toe-to-toe against the Israelites and Saul. And so, no doubt, the Amalekites think those two groups are occupied. They party. They they enjoy the, the, the booty that they have collected from all this raiding that's gone on in recent days. They assume they're safe. They party hard. And then we, then we see the inevitable, the obvious, retribution. Retribution, verse 17. David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Again, we see that the odds were not in David's favor. 400 men went up against some army, we're not told how many, so big that you could kill them for a day and a half, and there's still 400 left over to escape. That's a lot. That's a big slaughter, isn't it? And yet it also shows us God's power and his providence that 400 flee in the face of 400 others. 400 versus 400. I think that's a fair fight, right? It should be a coin toss, shouldn't it? But no, after a day and a half of decimation, 400 flee the 400 Israelites. Just as God promised and more so, you shall surely overtake. The Amalekites burned Ziklag and they stole all the women and children taking them into slavery. They're wickedness was severe and the judgment against them was also severe before you begin to have any compassion on Amalekites don't forget 
These are those who ruthlessly attacked Moses and company when they were simply sojourning through the desert in Exodus 17. Don't forget that after that, God himself said, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. Don't forget that right before entering the promised land, Moses gave a sermon to the people. And a big paragraph of that sermon is, don't forget what Amalek did. Don't forget the wickedness and don't forget the promise of God that he will wipe them out one day. And fast forward hundreds of years in 1 Samuel 15, God has been mocked and and his people have been fought by the Amalekites for, for hundreds of years, telling us that God is a patient God. His promise to wipe out the Amalekites didn't come to its fulfillment or even the next step in its fulfillment for hundreds of years. That next step in its fulfillment was God telling King Saul, In 1 Samuel 15, go and destroy the Amalekites, all of them, all of them, save nothing. Of course, we know Saul didn't obey, didn't obey fully, and that was was really the demise. That's when his throne began to crumble beneath him. And here we are now, many years later, in our chapter, and God tells David, go and fight those Amalekites, and you will have success. This should remind us that however personally motivated David and his men were to get back their wives and children and stuff, the primary basis for going against the Amalekites is because God said so. David asked the Lord, should we stay or should we go? The Lord said, go, so David went. Seeking Yahweh's blessing at that time was not just wise. It wasn't just pragmatically important to know if you'll win or lose. And you don't want to lose, so you want to find out up front. But no, it demonstrated what we keep saying, what David said from the very beginning, from the very chapter we were introduced to him. The battle is the Lord's. Not by might, not by strength. The battle against the Amalekites is the Lord's. Put it this way, this battle between David and his men, or the Israelites, and against the Amalekites, this is not the unending squabble between two groups who can't remember why they started hating each other in the first place. This is not the Old Testament version of Hatfield and McCoys who don't remember who started it or who's been worse all these years. This is God's judgment on a wicked nation and God using his man as an instrument of that judgment. This is God's war. And it's a microcosm of his cosmic war. It's waged on a cosmic level. This is Satan against the seed, right? This is the nations against the sun in Psalm 2. This is Pilate hunting, Herod hunting down the newborn Jesus. This here against the Amalekites is a microcosm of a cosmic war. And it's also a microcosm of the final war to come. You see, for all those who refuse God's reign and refuse the mercy that comes in Jesus through the cross, you will face God's war, capital W, war at the end of time. You will face his judgment. And every little 
blip of blood in these pages should remind you of what's to come and still to come. And you shouldn't think because God doesn't strike down a nation, because God doesn't throw down balls of fire like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. If he doesn't do it today, he'll not do it anymore. He'll never do it again. No, no, his patience is kindness. All right, moving along with another R, recovery. Number seven, recovery. David recovers all that was taken from them and then some. There was retribution, of course, came recovery of the women and children and all possessions. So verse 18 said, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. Can, can you just see this scene? Can you braveheart this in your imagination, right? There's some movie you can imagine, right, that went from war to loving embrace. You thought the wife was gone, and now she's in your arms. The kids you thought were dead, and here they are, all six or seven of them in your arms. And it's important for us to picture that and imagine that sweet reunion and the blessing that God gave in that recovery. But it's also important that we not miss a couple of peculiar things, at least in the, the reading of this. Look in verse 17, 18, 19, and 20. If you just look down, you can see one word repeated over and over, almost needlessly. It's David. Six times in a few verses, it says that David did this, and David got it back, and David beat them down, and David defeated them. It's an emphasis on David. Oh, I'm sure David wouldn't word it this way. He didn't write it. But we know David is the one who's famous for having slain his tens of thousands. No doubt David was the key instrument in this recovery, and hence it's emphasized by the narrator here. But another thing to notice is the repetition of the completeness of the recovery. They recovered all. Nothing was missing, whether small or great. David brought back all. All, verse 20 says, all the flocks and herds. Their flocks and herds, in other words. The people drove livestock before him. And they said, this is David's spoil. They got back everything and then some. David did it. But then we see reward. Eighth, Reward. Despite some resistance from some of his men, David shares all the rewards with all of his men. So verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Basor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. He says, who would listen to you in this matter? In other words, if you told this story to other people, they, they wouldn't 
They wouldn't side with you and not with me. And yet, nevertheless, it's grace what David is suggesting. It's grace. Do you know that the Old Testament law didn't require that everyone got the same share from the spoils? The Old Testament law distinguished between those who fought and got more and those who didn't and got less. But David graciously adds to the law here. He adds graciousness to the law. We might sympathize with the protesters at some of our shadier moments, right? I mean, we could even quote the New Testament, which says, those who don't work shouldn't eat. Maybe we can identify with that one parable where there's the guy who worked a full day and got a full day's wage, but then saw that some guy showed up at 5 p.m., worked one hour, and they got a full day's wage. And what did he say? One of the first sentences kids learn. That's not fair. <laughs> right? It's not fair. We should all get the same and work the same. And, and the landowner says, can't I give more grace if I want to? What I gave you is fair. What I give them is grace. And, and here David does that with these who stayed behind, those who were too exhausted. These worthless men betray their misguided hearts when they say, the spoil, verse 22, the spoil that we recovered. The narrator was right to emphasize David a few verses before. These people are wrong to emphasize we in verse 22. And David's response is the most right of all when he says in verse 23, it's what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Oh, David swung his sword, no doubt. David threw his slingshot, I'm sure, but, but the Lord has done it, and David recognized that. And that's what these men fail to realize. And so he appeals to them as brothers and gently and firmly leads them into the right attitude. Remember how Moses said in Deuteronomy 17, the king that God will have for you in the future is one of your brothers. David calls these worthless men here, not worthless men, but brothers. Remember that Moses said in Deuteronomy 17 that the future king can't be one who keeps and keeps and keeps. Remember that the prophet Samuel warned in this book that a king like the nations would take and take and take and take. And what's David doing here? He's giving and giving and giving and giving, isn't he? He's giving. In fact, he made it a rule or a law. That's the last R, rule. In anticipation of his kingship, David increasingly but graciously rules his people, starting with this Verse 25, where he made it a statue and a rule for, for Israel from that day forward to this day. What rule? That, that they all share alike. That he adds grace to the Mosaic law and says, no, no, no. Whether they stay behind or whether they swing swords, they all get the same. He's making legislation even though he's, he's not the king yet. 
But more and more, he's acting like it, right? The writing is on the wall. It's coming. It's coming. And this king not only makes laws, every king does that, but he gives and gives and gives. He gives reward to the exhausted. He gives reward to those who cannot work. He gives reward to those who know they cannot fight. It's so Jesus-like, isn't it? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus said. He made a rule, a law. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. We also see his rule in the last little paragraph here. You see in verse 26, it says, When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And then he lists a bunch of cities, which I don't want to pronounce. And that's it. That's the end of the chapter. But what does it mean? What, what are these cities mentioned here? And, and what's the significance of David's gifts to his friends, the elders back in Judah? Well, for one thing, this clarifies, in case you've been wondering, if you've been following along, this clarifies for us that David's little excursion to hide out in Philistine land for 16 months doesn't mean he doesn't have any friends back home. He has friends back home and friends in high places. They are rulers or elders. And they're all in cities that are close to Hebron. They're close to Hebron. That's what will become David's first royal city. We learn of that in 2 Samuel 2. So it's interesting that Hebron shows up here, right? In the cities around Hebron, David is sending gifts to these men, not to grease their palms to make his entrance back home easier. Oh, no, no. What David is doing here is something messianic, something kingly. Kings give good gifts it's a good thing to be a friend of a king so it's almost like an announcement it's almost like a foreshadow of the kingly stuff that's about to come and I think that's especially clear from the way David introduces these gifts to these men he says when you give it to him tell him it's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord in other words, David was doing just what God intended for Israel's king to do, to humbly and in faith go out in battle and take out the enemy that there might one day be peace on all sides. This is exactly what Hannah foreshadowed in her prayer at the beginning of this book. And she said, God's enemies will be overturned. He's raising up the lowly like little David. Remember, he was little. And he's taking down the lofty like giant Saul and like the Amalekites and pretty soon the Philistines. So both the gifts given to these elders and the, the, the representation of those gifts, that they're victories over the Lord's enemies, it all sing, sing signals David's kingly role in his soon coming ascension to the throne the king is coming. But so what? I mean, is anyone thinking that right now? But so what? So you're talking about a king millennia ago 
who was really nice to his subjects and he beat some bad people. So what? Well, the story goes on, doesn't it? The story keeps going on. There's more to the story and, and there's more to the story as we progress even hundreds of years later and come to the life of Jesus. King David did come, but the king is coming is this chorus through the whole Old Testament. And it culminates in the one they said of, Hosanna, God, glory in the highest, the king is here. It's come, it's now. And so Jesus is the ultimate, merciful, humble, righteous king. And we should, we should hear his name ring in our ears as we read 1 Samuel 30, even though it's about David. Jesus is the one who revives the helpless. That's us. Jesus is the one who welcomes the foreigner. That's us. Jesus fights the battle and conquers the enemy. Not the enemy of the Amalekites or the enemy of Russia or, or terrorists or something, but he fights the enemy of sin and Satan. He fights our enemies for us. Our, he fights our stubborn souls and conquers that. And through faith, he is our brother. Jesus died on the cross to bring us to God, to bring us back into the family of God. We are like those captured by, not the Amalekites, but sin and Satan. And, and Jesus goes in and he grabs us and takes us out. He brings us back home. And he did that through the cross. He did that through the cross. And through the cross and resurrection, like any good king, he gives good gifts to his people. Gifts. So bear with me as I close now by reading several New Testament passages that I think have some clear bearing on what we've read in 1 Samuel 30. So hear 1 Samuel 30 in your ears as, as I read, for instance, in Ephesians 4 about the gifts we have in Jesus. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men, spiritual gifts. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. He gave gifts through his resurrection and ascension. He went low, and he went up, and he... He gave gifts to us as part of his victory. Part of those gifts are people in the church who do different things for the purpose of building up the church until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2 where Paul says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Or Colossians 2, which says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. That is, on the cross. Don't you see this when Jesus casts out that demon in Matthew 12 and the religious leaders say, by whose authority do you do that? Is it a devil 
Is it the devil that leads you to do that? To cast out a demon? And Jesus says, that doesn't make any sense, fellas. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The house is Satan's. And Jesus' healing of the man who was demon-possessed was, was essentially going into Satan's house and binding him and taking the man and setting him free. Jesus has gone to the enemy to rescue us. And we join him in his victory. In Romans 16, Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Your feet! We have victory through him. And we join him in this cosmic, spiritual battle. It's not a battle of swords or of bombs. It's not a battle of conquering wills. But it's a battle of words and minds and pleading with people to see. And we go to this world with this message of Jesus as his messengers with his authority. That's how the Great Commission begins. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. The story goes on, it goes on, it goes on. Get this. You're not a part of another story than this. You're in this story I mean, you're not in the Bible, but the story, the plan of God goes on and on and on. And you're in it, and it's unfolding day by day. The end is sure, and there are assurances along the way. There's a whole lot we don't know, but we know he's good, and we know he's told us, go, pursue. Let's pray for his help to do what he says. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your victory over Satan and sin, and we thank you for your rescue. We want that redemption to spread here this morning. We want those who have not yet tasted and seen that you're savingly good to come to believe that, embrace it, and be saved and forgiven. Lord, we want those of us who have been forgiven to, to go in triumphal procession to believe that you are crushing Satan under our feet, to believe that you've given authority of heaven and earth in part to us, to we make disciples as we baptize them in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we teach them all that you've commanded us. We thank you for the comfort that you'll be with us always to the end of the age. We pray for your help in the church to use gifts that you have given in love and sacrifice for each other. Help us, Lord, to give and give and give like you do. And most of all, Lord, we thank you that you're a savior who doesn't take and take and take, a king who doesn't heap and heap and heap, but gives and gives and gives. We thank you for your great, great promises. Pray for your help, Lord, to believe them and, Lord, to pursue them for your namesake. Amen.